Hi, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 3 of San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Development here at San Francisco Ballet. For those of you who might be new, we are essentially a program note, with maybe a little extra sense of humor, that you can listen to in a lift, or on BART, or on your walk to the theater. We try to keep things pretty interesting and approachable, but also give you a few little nuggets of behind-the-scenes info or weird fun facts about the production. My favorite were all the donkey facts I got to share last year about Don Quixote. It hurts me that this year's shows won't feature any live animals. Oh well, there's always next season. Today our topic of discussion is Cinderella, which opens here in San Francisco at the end of January. This familiar fairy tale was created by one of San Francisco's favorite choreographers, Christopher Wilden, in 2012 to music by Sergei Prokofiev. With fantastic sets and costumes by Julian Crouch, magical projections by Daniel Brody, and breathtaking puppetry designed by MacArthur Foundation fellow Basil Twist, Wilden updates this timeless tale for modern audiences of every age. So today we're going to talk a bit about the history of Cinderella as a ballet and as a musical score, discuss the story of Christopher Wilden's Cinderella, which draws equally from the original Perrault tale as well as from the Brothers Grimm, and then chat a bit about what to look out for as you watch. So for the first time in 2020, let's get to the point. As with many a fairy tale, the version of Cinderella that we'll be talking about today wasn't the first. The earliest ballet versions seem to have been made in the Romantic era, around the early 18-teens, in Vienna and London, with the first notable version choreographed in 1893 by a dream team of Marius Petipa, Lev Ivanov, and Enrico Cicchetti to a score by Baron Boris Fittentoff Schell for the Mariinsky Ballet. Interestingly, the 32 fouette turns that have now become iconic in Swan Lake those were first choreographed for this version of Cinderella in 1893, a few years before they were put into Swan Lake. But I'm going to confess, I've never heard the Fittenhoff Shell score, and honestly, I doubt anyone living has. Despite the talent associated with the production, it was never performed again after 1901, and the score wasn't published, so that puppy's long gone. That means by the time composer Sergei Prokofiev took on the score in 1940, there was plenty of room for creativity. Or was there? The 1940s in the Soviet Union weren't really known for their vast amounts of creative freedom. And indeed, Prokofiev was a bit wary about taking on another ballet after his Romeo and Juliet, which, while ultimately a success, had gone through a variety of political and logistical delays on its way to the stage. We'll talk more about Romeo and Juliet later this season, when we get to Helgi Thomason's version of that ballet in May. But today, let's talk a bit about who Sergei Prokofiev was before diving more deeply, specifically, into Cinderella. As a note, most of my Prokofiev info is coming from two books by Princeton professor Simon Morrison. First, his 2009 text, The People's Artist, Prokofiev's Soviet Years. And second, his 2016 history of the Bolshoi Ballet, Bolshoi Confidential. Professor Morrison will actually be here in San Francisco in May as this year's San Francisco Ballet Visiting Scholar, giving a few presentations to the public, including at least one that will be free and open to the public at the Opera House on May 6th. See you there? Anyway, back to Prokofiev. By 1940, Prokofiev had already composed several ballets, including Le Potissier, On the Dnieper, The Bright Stream, and Romeo and Juliet. 
none without their complications. He had left Russia in 1918, spending several years abroad in Paris and in the United States, before agreeing to return in 1935, when the Mariinsky Theater offered him the unturned-downable commission to create an opera or ballet on the subject of his choice. He didn't really intend to stay permanently in the Soviet Union. Unlike many other artists, Prokofiev had been allowed fairly free passage back and forth between the USSR and the rest of the world during the 1920s. But it became clear that such privileges were about to come to an end unless he moved his home base from Paris to Moscow. He did, bringing his wife and two children with him and thinking he'd be able to continue his international career. But that wasn't really to prove the case. Indeed, although Prokofiev himself managed to skirt the ideological purges of the late 1930s, they hit close to home. Librettist Adrian Petrovsky, with whom he'd worked on Romeo and Juliet, was convicted of treason. Four tenants of his apartment building disappeared. And his by then estranged wife, Lena, was arrested in 1948 and sentenced to 20 years hard labor, of which she served eight. It's against this backdrop that Prokofiev takes on the Cinderella Commission, as well as in the midst of this history that the ballet is written. For though it was first announced in the press in early 1941, the ballet didn't see its premiere until November of 1945, meaning it's also a work of the Second World War. Musically, the ballet became, as Morrison says, both with and against Prokofiev's desires, the fourth Tchaikovsky ballet, adhering closely to traditional ballet forms. The composer wrote that, quote, I see Cinderella as an updated classical ballet with its particular forms, like the pas d'action, grand pas, and so forth, and no less than two or three full-scale waltzes. But it's musically modern as well, with the contemporary rhythms and chromatic shifts that characterize Prokofiev's music. The scenario was produced by Nikolai Volkov, based largely on the 1697 Charles Perrault tale. But that caused immediate conflict with Prokofiev, who preferred to take on the darker rendition by Russian author Alexander Afanasyev. Once the war began, the Volkov-Prokofiev partnership ended, and details of the plot reverted back to Prokofiev, theater director Yuri Zavadsky, and the choreographer's domain. And there were, indeed, several choreographers attached to the project. First, Vaktang Chabukiani, who most contributed to nailing down the plot, and who, in a charming story, had to dance the entire second act of the ballet for Prokofiev before a single note had been written, as Prokofiev wanted to be sure that no one would tamper with his score to accommodate the choreography. So the dance had to come first. Next, Konstantin Sergeyev, once Prokofiev and the Kirov evacuated to Perm in 1943 as the war intensified. It was there that rehearsals actually began. After that, Rostislav Zakharov premiered the ballet for the Bolshoi Ballet in 1945, before Sergeyev premiered his version in Leningrad in 1946. Since then, balletic versions of Cinderella have abounded, perhaps most notably internationally in Frederick Ashton's 1948 take on Prokofiev's score, and in San Francisco in Michael Smuin and Lou Christensen's 1973 version. That version was televised by PBS in 1985, with Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy providing color commentary. The tradition of the choreographer fiddling with the plot continued when Christopher Wielden took on this story in 2012. Wielden is no stranger to stories. An artistic associate at the Royal Ballet, a company known for its attention to narrative, and the Tony Award-winning director of the musical An American in Paris— and the choreographer of several full-length story ballets, Wielden really knows how to transform an idea into a compelling evening of work. Part of that, of course, is about bringing in the right collaborators. For this ballet, that meant Julian Crouch to do sets and costumes, Basil Twist to work on puppets, yes, 
puppets, and Daniel Brody to do projections. Listening to me talk is not going to give you any sense whatsoever of just how fantastical this production is, or the end of the first act in particular. So rather than try, I'm just going to say, come see the show. Or in the meantime, follow us on any kind of social media account or on our website to see some glimpses of these remarkable sets and costumes. Cinderella was a co-commission of San Francisco Ballet and the Dutch National Ballet, an increasingly common arrangement as making a new story ballet is a major financial undertaking for any company. Wielden made the dancing on both organizations, bringing principal dancers from Amsterdam to San Francisco and from San Francisco to Amsterdam to work on the piece. Many current company members were around for that rehearsal process, and fun fact, new soloist Sasha Mukhamedov created the role of the Russian princess when she was with the Dutch National Ballet. Like Prokofiev, Wielden found the Peralt story a little sweet and turned an addition to the tale published by the Brothers Grimm in 1857. Notable in the Brothers Grimm story is the lack of a fairy godmother. Instead, Cinderella asks her father to bring her back the first twig that brushes against his hat on his ride home from a fair. She plants the twig on her mother's grave and it grows into a hazel tree, which she visits daily. A white bird watches her and whenever she expresses a wish, the bird will toss down what she asks for. When the matter of the ball comes up, she asks for a dress and shoes, and the bird obliges. But that's all getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Although it's a familiar tale, let's chat through the ballet's plot as a whole, pointing out some fun additional characters along the way and some things to look for in Wielden's choreography. Okay, so the first act opens, as so many fairy tales do, with a mother's death. After all, the whole crux of this tale is that Cinderella has a stepmother and step-siblings, and apparently 17th century France wasn't super into the whole divorce thing, so death by consumption it is. Perhaps suspecting that her father isn't cut out for the single-parent life, four fates arrive to watch over Cinderella, kind of like that bird in the Brothers Grimm tale, and a tree grows from her mother's grave. One of the great pleasures of Wild and Cinderella is that everyone is so crisply drawn, even the evil characters whom we promptly meet. Hortensia, the evil stepmother, and it does make you question Cinderella's father's judgment that he would marry her, and Clementine and Edwina, Cinderella's two new, mostly though not always vile, stepsisters. Though our poor heroine tries at first to stand up to these mean girls, her father is enamored with the new wife and demands she play nice. In an interesting twist, Wilden Cinderella doesn't cave because she's meek or subservient, but rather in a moment of spite, a kind of, if you're not going to take my side, then I'm going to show you just how docile I can be kind of moment. And if that seems counterproductive, well, it is. And to be honest, doesn't work out that well for Cinderella in the long run. Scene change, and now we're at the palace, where we meet a young Prince Guillaume and his best friend Benjamin who are growing up under the watchful eyes of King Albert and Queen Charlotte. Let's just say that being royal, though it has its advantages, also seems to come with its downsides, and Guillaume is perhaps a bit more of the Prince Harry than the Prince William model, despite his name. But like all royal gentlemen, he does need to marry a nice girl, preferably one with a large dowry, a standing army or navy, and a decent amount of land, or at least an appropriately pedigreed noblewoman. King Albert insists that Guillaume must throw a big party to meet all of the eligible young ladies in the village, or in the country, I suppose, and sends him out with Benjamin to hand-deliver the invitations. Guillaume does have one trick up his sleeve, however. He has Benjamin pretend to be a prince, while he pretends to be a beggar as they go door-to-door, a quite Homeric way to see what's going on in a household. When they get to Cinderella's home, her stepsisters treat the beggar poorly and the prince like, well... 
a prince. And Cinderella, despite her stubbornness, is sweet to the beggar. Um, this is actually a callback to the scenario, the original scenario, and to a detail that Ashton incorporates into his ballet, where the fairy godmother first appears at the house in the guise of a beggar woman. Asking for charity, the family all refuse, except for Cinderella, who offers the woman her sole possession, a pair of slippers. For Wielden, this moment offers a first chance to have Cinderella and the prince dance together. It hardly even quite counts as a pas de this moment. It's more like a little joke of a social dance that slips into something more. But it's momentous in its own way, setting the stage for the bigger pas de that are yet to come and reminding the audience that dances, like this one, are a way of communicating, not only with the audience, but also a way for two dancers or two people to speak to one another. Dance is a form of communication. But the moment doesn't last, and we fast forward a few days when worst stepmother ever Hortensia casually tosses Cinderella's invite to the ball into the fire. Hortensia, Edwina, and Clementine leave to go to the ball, leaving Cindy alone and cleaning the kitchen. At this point, the four fates take charge, bringing Cinderella to the tree, remember the tree, which gets her all set up with the dress, invite, carriage, and a few new dance moves taught by representatives from each of the seasons. Another nod to the original Prokofiev text. The first act, like many ballets, is largely about character development and plot exposition, transitioning quickly between places and timelines. But in addition to that moment between Cinderella and her prince, I'll just say that the final scene of this act is worth the price of admission. Featuring outstanding puppetry and some phenomenal music, this climactic moment really highlights the ways in which ballet is a collaborative art, bringing music, design, and dance together into something more powerful than any single art form. All right, after that, you'll get to stand up, you'll grab a drink, and you'll head back for Act 2. Or maybe that's what Hortensia does, because this is the ball, and Hortensia definitely downed one too many glasses of champagne at the open bar. Cinderella appears and catches Guillaume's eye, decked out entirely in gold, dress, shoes, hairpiece, mask, a holdover from the fairy tale where her dress and shoes were made of silver and gold. None of that blue nonsense from a certain large animation company. Everything becomes dreamlike once she appears. Wilden has the corps de ballet fade into muted lighting, swaying gently, creating a sense that even among this crowd, the prince and Cinderella are alone. Eventually, they join that crowd, their waltzing mimicking that of the corps de ballet, but also hearkening back to their earlier dance in the kitchen. Wilden doesn't quite treat this moment like a traditional grand pas de At first, it's more like a Petipa ballet's dream sequence, in which the two main characters weave among a large corps de ballet, and then it transitions into a clearer structure, in which each of the two gets a solo, followed not by a virtuosic coda, but instead by a slower, passionate adagio. Until, of course, the clock begins to strike midnight, and Hortensia, still pretty awful, rips off Cinderella's mask. She dashes out, but leaves a golden slipper behind. In addition to the moments with Guillaume and Cinderella, the second act is full of other complimentary duets. Keep an eye out for the one between the stepsisters, between Cinderella's father and Hortensia, and not quite a dance, but the beginning of a flirtation between Clementine and Benjamin. It turns out that maybe Clementine isn't quite as bad as the rest of her family. One more intermission later, and we are back, ready to find the girl who fits that point shoe. Guillaume and Benjamin travel far and wide, per Volkov's original scenario, from north to south, east to west, and they finally make it to Cinderella's home. The shoe doesn't, of course, fit Edwina or Clementine, and in what seems to be a pattern, Hortensia throws the golden shoe into the fire. 
Luckily, Cinderella isn't one to throw away keepsake, so she's able to produce the matching shoe, and she and Guillaume manage to live happily ever after. And never fear, though Guillaume may have less time for Benjamin now that he's got a girl, Benjamin makes out pretty well too, sweeping Clementine off her feet and out of her mother's grasp forever. While many ballets end with a big wedding, and this one is no exception, it's a different kind of wedding than is typical. Softer, more romantic, less pomp and circumstance. A simple pas de deux for Cinderella and Guillaume under her mother's tree transforms into a charming outdoor wedding with all of our favorites in attendance. The choreography throughout is typical Wielden, lyrical, classical with a contemporary twist, and never more so than in these final moments when Cinderella seems to float with happiness, her arms and legs trailing through the air. And the final image of the ballet again subverts some expectations. Not a grand finale or big last dance, but instead a repeat of that moment in the kitchen, a quiet moment, a dance that isn't about tricks or technique, but two humans in love. And that is it for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in to season three of To The Point, and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating or review in the podcast app and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new, bigger audiences. Thank you for listening and see you at the Opera House.